Welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. I'm Fiona Sutherland, body inclusive non diet dietitian and yoga teacher from Melbourne, Australia, and director of the Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I have important conversations with dietitians and health professionals from all over the world about getting brave and leaning into tough conversations as we cultivate a strong community of practitioners committed to body inclusive practice. We'll talk about mindfulness, we'll dig into diet culture, and we'll explore ways of bringing courageous and important topics into our professional spaces so we can more deeply understand our own experience and make our work more meaningful. Thank you for joining me. Hi everyone and welcome back to this next episode of the Mindful Dietitian podcast. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen. Recently I had the enormous pleasure of chatting with Anna Lutz who is a registered dietitian from North Carolina in the United States. We dug down into lots of different things but the two main areas that we really discussed and explored are around protective nutrition education in schools and the power of embodied practice. So we talk a little bit about the background of why Anna became involved in protective nutrition education in the first place and why it's become really her passion area and her specialist area. I see all over the internet that people are referring to Anna both for their individual um, consultations as well as supervision um, and every, every single question that they have about protective nutrition education. We also talk about how well-intentioned education interventions in schools can possibly be doing our children harm and what we can do as community members and as dietitians to minimise this. We really talk about the progression of a child's learning development and how that uh, can match with nutrition education when we're planning this or, or working together with schools and educational institutions um, to, uh, to help our kids to learn about food and eating and, and how to um, help their bodies to grow and develop and um, to have really positive nutrition experiences in life. We talk about why parents and educators are just as important to educate about nutrition as children. And you'll hear about why I personally am really, really passionate about not just speaking to children, but talking to parents and educators as well. We talk about how Anna uses sensory motor psychotherapy and how it can be a useful tool for dietitians working in the eating disorder space. Anna and I completely geek out on the window of tolerance model and how this can be a useful way of um, understanding the underpinnings of eating disorders, particularly in a background of trauma. So I hope you really enjoy this episode. It was lots of fun to record because Anna is just so incredibly knowledgeable. And the, uh, the benefit of this is that, you know, we were really able to dive down quite deep into both of these topics and, um, and hopefully you really enjoy that. So Anna is from sunnysideupnutrition.com. So you can look at her work there, both individual work and her blogs are also there. She can be found on Instagram at Anna Lutz, RD. And then if you want to find um, her as a supervisor, probably the best way to find her there is via sunny, sunnysideupnutrition.com. Um, and Anna, you can see Anna really regularly across all the Facebook groups, including our very own, The Mindful Dietitian. So if you're a health professional and you're interested in health at every size, mindful eating, eating disorders, body image, and everything in those kind of sphere of things, then please join us in our closed professional Facebook group, just entitled The Mindful Dietitian. Also at my website, you'll be able to find lots of opportunities for online and live learning, including non-diet approach workshops, um, online uh, eating disorders in sport 
courses um, and all kinds of other opportunities for us to, to connect and learn and grow and develop this community together. So again, thank you so much for being here and I'm going to hand over to Anna Lutz. Thank you, Anna, so much for joining me on the Mindful Dietitian podcast. How wonderful to connect. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. It's been uh, a while since we connected in person. You and I first met at the Binge Eating Disorder Conference in Brooklyn back at the end of 2017 or 2018, was it? I think it was 2017. I think it's been about a year and a half. Yes, it must be 2017. Yeah. I'm kind of losing track <laughs> of I know. the years. I know. Oh, my goodness me. Uh, now, shortly before that, um, you and Catherine Zavodny crossed my path, I guess my cognitive or my brain's path, as being people who have done a lot of work in what we now have named, or by we, I specifically mean you and Catherine, really, as, prote as protective nutrition education. And I know this is something that has been a real passion area of yours. So I'm curious to understand a little bit about kind of, you know, what has led up to this particular area of work, you being such a leader in this field. Well, great. Well, I'd love to first explain why we have, we use that name protective nutrition education. Um, you know, when, when we first started talking about Catherine and I started talking about what is developmentally appropriate nutrition education for kids, the word preventative kept coming up that we wanted to prevent kids from having eating disorders or having, um, um, internalized weight stigma or different problems from nutrition education. Uh, but then we thought, well, that doesn't, just prevention doesn't go far enough. That if we could teach our kids about body diversity and about different topics that would actually protect them from the greater diet culture, then that is really um, it's such a, a more positive place to put our focus rather than let's prevent bad things from happening. Let's, let's make good things happen. So that's kind of why we use that word protective. I get asked that a lot. Why do we use the word protective instead of preventative? And so kind of that's why. Um, but I first became interested, I would say, in this. Probably my, the very, very early would be me learning from um, Ellen Satter's work. So this is a topic she touches on um, in her books. And, and then as time went and I ha started having children in grade school and preschool and I was working in eating disorders, I um, was really attuned to the nutrition education they were getting in preschool and elementary school. And I was really noticing this very strong diet culture um, that was infused in any of their nutrition lessons. And so I kind of got passionate um, about it from a personal level. Yeah, that is, that's really interesting. So how did what you were observing coming through with from your kids' educational uh, learnings or the places where they, were, where they were in education, how did this either intersect or conflict with what you'd learned as a dietitian? Well, I, I think very immediately, I'm, I'm thinking back to when my oldest, who's now 12, was in preschool. She was three. And she came home saying that she learned about um, red light foods and green light foods. And to me, that's a euphemism for good foods and bad foods, right? And so as a dietitian that specializes in eating disorders, I talk about with my clients all the time is there, you know, when we start categorizing foods, how harmful that is, that 
Um, food, they're not, you know, things are not that black and white. They're not good or bad that we need all foods. And if we demonize foods that really affects how we think about them and um, how we uh, might approach them. And so then to see a three-year-old come home with this information that I'm working with my clients to really try to eradicate from their thinking, it was pretty jarring, right? And so um, I'm thinking even early on to kind of answer your question more about how I became interested in this. Um, before that, Catherine and I um, did a workshop here in North Carolina for dietitians about um, um, approaching for, so it's for all dietitians, not just eating disorder dietitians about approaching their work from a non-diet approach. And kind of the idea was eating disorder dietitians have all this wisdom that we talk to our clients about, like there's no good foods and bad foods. There's wonderful body diversity, these kind of themes that we all know eating disorder dietitians know. And really these are themes that all dietitians need to be using. And so, so we kind of name this as eating disorder disorder wisdom, eating disorder dietitian wisdom, and kind of thinking about it globally. And a piece of that workshop was about nutrition education, kind of this theme that I was just talking about, about red light, green light foods, or, you know, what is developmentally appropriate for these little minds. And so I think, again, that's why it was so, so such a contrast when I have a three-year-old coming home telling me about this. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't uh, imagine that that would have felt like, a, like um, you wanted to throw not so soft things against a wall. Yes. <laughs> I can yes. imagine. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yeah, these these uh, e educational institutions, schools, kinders, uh, preschools, etc. with these dietitian mothers. My goodness. I know. I know. And um, you know, I've learned a lot. That was what 9 years ago. So I've learned a lot about how the best a way to approach a teacher because of course teachers are very um, well intention they're only doing what they know is best right exactly um, of course that first time that that happened I was um uh, I felt a lot of anger but I've I've grown and 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 I'm doing a better job partnering with with teachers on this nice nice yeah. well done <laughs> now one thing that you and Catherine have done which I think is very very clever and I don't mean that facetiously mm -hmm. is that uh, in I've, I've only been to one workshop that you presented, but I left just feeling so much clearer about the rationale for why protective nutrition education is so important for start, starting from the very youngest of years. Mm -hmm. um, so if you don't mind kind of stepping us through, what you did so beautifully is match age groups with kind of cognitive stages of development and provided such a beautiful framework for understanding, for example, why we would and would not explain to a three-year-old X, Y, Z and a five-year-old and then an eight-year-old and then a 12-year-old. And I think that you just did that really beautifully. And the reason I think that that was so important is because that's what educators and teachers understand. They understand it in every other way about why we might do, for example, mathematics in this sequential kind of way, or why we might do writing or reading or languages or even sport. It's all, you know, very sequential for a reason because it, it aims to match a child's kind of cognitive and to some degree physical development as well. So um, do you mind telling us a little bit about how you did that? Because I think that was actually really, really clever for me. It made the whole thing made sense. 
Great. Well, thank you. Um, and because that is what you explained is really kind of our biggest point, which is in every part of education, looking at what's developmentally appropriate is what teachers know. And so, you know, what we did was we really looked at the research around developmentally, developmentally appropriate education and what is, what is taken into account and how to take nutrition and, and apply it to that. So taking the science of nutrition that we know and how to make the education piece developmentally appropriate. Um, and so, and, and kind of as a side note, I really think that nutrition is the only thing that we've just decided that what we teach a 15 year old is what we can teach a three year old, right? Like we just need to teach everybody the same things because, Oh my goodness, what would happen if they didn't know this very important information? And, you know, so, um, we're really trying to step back and some of it I think is, is pretty common sense. Honestly, it's just been really turned around by diet culture. Um, but where we started was really looking at Piaget's um, theory of cognitive development. So he was um, a psychologist who developed a theory about how children's cognitions develop. And so what we know is um, when you look at a preschooler, so that kind of um, preschool age, um, two, three, four, um, kids are very, very concrete thinkers. So they um, really don't have the ability to think abstractly. And in general, nutrition, a lot of nutrition is really abstract, right? The idea of um, even calcium is, is something we can't see, right? Or that certain foods might cause this disease. It's a very abstract concept. And so um, something that we've learned is that, you know, three and four-year-olds don't have the ability to take an object and understand that it can be in more than one category, which I think is interesting because we like to teach kids about food groups, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you start to teach kids about food groups when they're three, four, five years old, um, it's even hard for some of us to hold some of the information. I was um, um, doing a workshop recently and I was looking up that in the United States, the, our, um, the governmental agency that's um, puts out some of the nutrition recommendations, corn is put in three different food groups. <laughs> so it's put in, if it's ground up and it's in the form of a tortilla, it's in the um, grain group. Mm -hmm. If it's on a cob, it's put in the vegetable group. Right. But by, by, um, from a biological standpoint, so this is not from the USDA, but, but from a biological standpoint, it's actually a, um, a fruit because it comes from the flowering part of the plant. Right. So just right there, right? Like if someone said, what food group is the corn in? You might get a bunch of different answers and technically right. they can be more than one group. So anyway, um, but three and four year olds don't have that ability. As they become older, um, they, they kind of reach what Piaget called the age of reason, where they can understand this complexity. They can hold that um, an apple is red. It can also, it's also something that comes from a tree. It's also a fruit. It, it can hold that it has all of these different characteristics. Um, but it's not until middle school age, 12, 13, where kids really develop that abstract thinking. Mm. And so that abstract thinking might be... Um, 
being able to understand more about health consequences of nutrition or um, um, diff about different nutrients. So what you and I might think of as kind of traditional nutrition education, that really needs to be held off until someone can think abstractly. And really what's more developmentally appropriate for young kids is learning where foods come from, um, you know, learning, having food exposures, you know, those type of things, having experiences around food. Yeah, I love that. So if you were designing a, a program, I guess, that went from, say, preschool all the way through to the end of high school, so just say it was Anna and Catherine's super mega protective nutrition education program. Let's just, you know, and you, can, and you can borrow that if you like. I'll, I'll, okay, good. I'll only take 5%. It's all right. Okay, yeah. okay good. Yeah. Uh, so I'm sure we can come up with something a lot cleverer. Um, so if you, uh, let's just say, because I'm speaking with you, um, were designing something that was age appropriate across the age groups, can you step us through, you know, the kinds of things that might be appropriate? So you've already mentioned, you know, for the younger age groups that really it's about exposure and it's probably about um, sensory, you know, getting involved in it from a sensory perspective. So do you mind just kind of stepping us through? Because I actually think that's something that a lot of dietitians who often get asked to speak Yes. at yes. preschools or primary schools or elementary schools or even high schools, you know, I think that's something that we actually need to stay on top of so that we yeah. don't end up unintentionally perpetuating harm in lots of ways. So I'm going to hand it over to you. Do you mind kind of stepping us through a little? I love that. So preschool age, I, I really like um, food experiences and, and something um, that I love is reading a book to, you know, like a picture book and then having kind of um, a no pressure taste test is what we call it. And so one of my very favorite books is Yoko by Rosemary Wells. And it's about this adorable kitten who brings sushi for lunch and gets teased for her sushi Aww. that it's different than the other food. Yeah. But then by the end, she kind of learned all the kids or all the little animals <laughs> learn that different pe families have different foods mm -hmm. and, um, and so I've, I love reading this book to kids and bringing in, I've brought in like um, vegetable sushi that I, I purchase and then people can taste it or not taste it. And what's really cool, I think about children and food is a lot of times they'll taste things when it's in a group and there's not that pressure of one adult staring at them saying, you have to try this. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I also love just bringing food into centers, you know, if they, you have a kitchen center or there's math and so they're going to um, count different types of food or they might um, make applesauce in the class. So any kind of those experiential um, um, food, food lessons is really appropriate for that preschool. When you move up into early elementary school, these are still concrete thinkers. So they haven't gotten to the point where they're in that more abstract thinking um, and they can maybe start learning a little bit about more about where foods come from. Um, they might, maybe they could visit a farm or they could watch a video, like a virtual farm tour. Um, I still like with that younger age to do, um, to read a book and um, have a no pressure taste test. Um, kind of thinking about the theme of apples. If they, you know, made ap applesauce when they're in preschool, maybe early elementary school, 
we do a taste test and we bring in all different color of apples. We have green apples and red apples and, and different kinds and cut them up and um, have the kids keep a log of which, which um, was their favorite, which was their friend's favorite. And so it can be part of a math. Oh, I love that. It's something like that. And then kind of moving up into um, upper elementary school. So that might be um, eight, nine, 10 years old. So that's when they've kind of reached that point. They can really start to grasp the complexity of food groups. So maybe we start to introduce um, the different food groups, but without any kind of judgment, mm-hmm. you know, so there's all there's these different foods, um, you know, this is where they come from, but there's not that judgment of these foods are good and these foods are bad, but we're just starting to kind of understand the different food groups. Um, and I really like to keep um, the theme of learning about food cultures, Yes, um, that all foods are different all families are different. There's not one way to eat. And I think that's one of the biggest concerns I have about the way we teach nutrition in the States is that we act like there's only one way to eat. Yes. You know, anglicized, isn't it? Oh yes. Mm. And it's so sad to me. Um, and I think it creates that kind of shame for some children. Well, that's not how my family eats. My family's plate doesn't look like that. Um, and so really, really teaching that all families are different and that families teaching kids that parents know know what to do rather than this other way of kind of I feel like the way we teach nutrition is we know better go home and tell your parents this is really how you do it mm-hmm. and I just think what kind of fear that can create in a little you know mind if they don't think their mother or father knows how to take care of them you know I think that's there's a lot of a lot of harm that's done there yeah, um, it's it's not so. It's not just about the, it's not just about the messaging. It's also about how that can become internalized and what's what that means in terms of the, I guess the re- relational dynamics that happens between a teacher and a student, and then yes. that same child, and their parents. You know that yes. that teachers are very influential in in yes. in really wonderful ways. Like it's so wonderful. I have a, so much respect for teachers, um, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, understanding that um, relationships and relational dynamics really matter, especially when it comes to um, areas that can possibly be, um, you know, hot, hot button topics or or shame topics or something that can really influence um, their relationship with food eating and their body long term as well. Absolutely. I absolutely, I totally agree. And I think about that kids aren't doing the grocery shopping, elementary school age That's kids, right? right? So yeah. we, you know, it's, wonderful that for them to be exposed to different foods to learn where foods come from to um, be able to taste different foods that maybe they don't have at their house but at the end of the day we really doesn't make it doesn't make sense to tell them what they should be eating because they're not grocery shopping you know Um, so and and so then I kind of think in that older elementary school if we're kind of going back to this apple theme if you know maybe we're learning where apple what where apples grow or how they grow what's the kind of um, what does that cycle look like with the flowering part of the plant? Um, and, and maybe even share, uh, cook a recipe together, or share a recipe, f- um, from a family, that kind of thing. And then once we kind of get into middle school, that's where kids can think abstractly. So that's the time where you maybe start to introduce a little bit more about nutrients. So, you know, apples provide us with carbohydrates and let's put some protein. Um, let's match up some carbohydrates and protein. And so let's put some apples and peanut butter together. 
Um, so you can start to really introduce those more abstract concepts in middle school in a, in a way that's empowering, non-judgmental. Um, and I also have mentioned a few times that I'm a big proponent of teaching about body diversity, that all, not all bodies are supposed to look the same. Yeah. yeah, beautiful. And so kind of, so moving on from there, so at middle school, when they can kind of uh, grasp more co complex um, concepts, it's interesting to think about, you know, in the various professional groups that you and I are involved in, uh, what we notice is there's a lot of discussions from both within our community and also from our clients and communities that we work in individually about, um, you know, around that 12, 13, a lot of um, perhaps we could call them missteps. So things like calorie counting or weighing kids for the sake of, you know, a maths type of activity or, um, you know, showing videos that, um, you know, the recipients uh, or the viewers of those videos would internalize the content of that very, very differently. Um, yes. So, you know, uh, for, for any dietitians or any people who are listening who are being invited to kind of uh, come in and around that, you know, 12 to 15 age group, which would be, I'm not sure exactly sure what you call that in the States, but for us, it's kind of lower high school, I guess. Okay. Um, would that be junior high and middle school or something? I'm not sure. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So middle school and junior high are about the same thing. But yeah. That's okay, kind of cool. like 13 to 15 kind of age. Right. So yeah. exactly the time when usually not always bodies are changing, yes. starting to um, become more aware of our own selves in the world, physically, emotionally, mentally. Um, so a pretty, not a pretty, a very important age group to know when to put on the accelerator and then when to back right off. Um, so what kind of tips would you offer to um, either pe people listening or dietitians who are being invited into schools or might be um, asked to consult over, which would be, oh my God, that would be amazing, to consult over various um, curriculums or uh, programs? What would you say? Yeah. Well, I'd say the biggest thing is to avoid any kind of um, comparing of any kind of numbers at all, um, you know, so any kind of weighing, any kind of calorie talk that, um, yes, there are some people that that would not affect at all, but there's plenty of kids that it really, really would um, in a negative way. And that to know that kids compare, right? So even if you say, well, we're weighing them individually, you know, in, in private, or in private, but there's, there's instantly, you know, they're on the playground and they're comparing. And so that's just not an appropriate thing to do at school. And, and that, um, that some, the way some people's brain works, they really attach on to these numbers, right? So that, you know, you and I, we, we in some ways can hear some of these numbers and see it in a context and understand it in a bigger context. But a, a child, a 13, 14, 15 year old, um, doesn't have the context to know what, okay, well, I need X number of calories. What does that mean? And a lot of adults don't either. Really. <laughs> That's so true. Yeah. So, oh my gosh. Yeah, um, totally. Yeah. So to just really, um, I would say steer away from that and to, um, I would say to really focus on, um, the diversity piece, I think, mm -hmm. you know, I think they're just, that age is so susceptible to comparing and wanting to fit in 
and to talk about, um, you know, all the variety of foods we have and where, you know, that food, different families cook differently and that our bodies are all different. And um, I would love for kids to learn that in that age, you know, that especially girls that weight gain and particularly fat gain is normal and expected. And when the rest of the world is demonizing um, the body, the, the way bodies change um, during um, puberty. And so um, just to be a positive force, I would say if you don't know, if you're a dietitian invited in and you don't know what to do, um, less is more. Yes. I love <laughs> you know, that. Less is more at that age because um, it may just be going in and um, doing a taste test and that, and having a discussion would be a wonderful thing to do at that age and see if they have questions for you. Yeah, I really like that. I, I yeah, I really appreciate you saying less is more, um, because that was my I guess my instinct. You know, I, I used to do a lot of uh, spend spend a lot of time with secondary school students, so you know, thirteen to maybe seventeen years old, okay. um, at a couple of a couple of big schools here, and it was it was really interesting over the years as my own. Uh, understanding developed um, how I would change the content quite dramatically yes, yes, you know, kids yes. teenagers love quiz type things or uh, you know myth busting and um, you know for, for a lot of that for, for everybody for, for anybody in the room who's thinking oh oh that can't be right or what's this dietitian saying that you know right that that um, you know diversity is a good thing there's going to even be a small number of kids who this is the first time they've heard it. Um, they may fit, not feel like they belong in so many ways and that our message is really important for those kids, for the kids who are not going to necessarily hear that about the food they're eating or um, maybe uh, medical conditions that they're dealing with, maybe in private um, or the way their bodies show up in the world. So the way that we say things is really important, not necessarily for the majority, but actually for maybe for the minority more than anything else. Totally agree with you. And, you know, we probably one of my biggest concerns is that, you know, the interventions that we're making in response to the quote unquote obesity epidemic, I think is causing children harm. Mm -hmm. and we know that weight stigma um, is a, is a predictive predictor of um, health problems. So if, if, you know, I, anyone in the health profession, of course, is wanting to help people, but if we can really understand this, it's a, this concept about weight stigma and, you know, we don't want to go into schools and make people feel badly about their bodies and, and increase weight-based bullying, which we're seeing. Um, and so we really want to think about that piece of things rather than kind of thinking about, well, we know this, all this information and we want to kind of relay it to, to children so they can be healthy instead um, to really think about, well, let, I don't want to create shame or weight stigma. How can I empower yeah. these children to take care of themselves? Right. Cause that's, that's that. really our goal. That's our mutual goal is to help people take good care of themselves. Yeah. Um, I love that yeah. within their capacity. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I think that idea is just, is absolutely brilliant. Um, and I wanted to run one idea past you and I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it. So uh, you know, in the more in the more recent years, um, 
when I or others say, for example, dietitians who I supervise have been invited in to speak to students. Maybe it's about a specific topic or maybe it's a little bit more general kind of topic or maybe it's for the student athletes, for example, about nutrition and fueling. Um, one, one thing I've started to become a little bit, I guess, firmer on is that for every hour that I spend with students, I request the hour, another hour with staff. Oh, I love and, that. Yeah, and or parents because I actually, like when I leave a, a, a session with students, um, whether or not teachers are present, like physically present, uh, intellectually present and not on their computers doing a million other things, and that is not dismissing the fact that teachers are really, really busy, but if they're actually physically present, then what I'm telling the kids, they need to kind of be listening as well, right? Um, so all that aside, let's not get, like I'm not, I hope, that was really judgy. I apologise. Um, but, you know, so I'm, I'm wondering your thoughts on, you know, for every hour that we spend with students, we also need to be extending that out to the environments, the really important environments that they're in every day. Because I actually put a question mark over how effective we can be if we're just talking to young people. I don't know. What, I mean, what are your thoughts? I, I, I'm so glad you're bringing that up. And I love your idea. I've never even thought of that to, to kind of demand that, you know, or to offer that would be another way to put it. Um, because I really think that the environment is really where our effort should go to. And I, honestly, if I had to choose, if I had to choose between talking to the teachers or parents right. or the children, I would choose the teachers and parents. Right. Um, and to really, um, because I think that the, the environment that we're all in is, um, is, that's what affects children the most, right? Is what they're hearing from these really trusted people, their parents or their teachers. That's really what's going to affect them the most. Um, and so I'm really glad, I'm glad you brought that up um, because I think that's where, that's where our efforts can be more fruitful, really. I think so. Yeah. And also, if you're speaking with parents and staff, they're also, they have a lot more exposure to other kids as well. So whether mm -hmm. it's kids of different age levels, different age groups, um, maybe other siblings, um, you know, future children um, at other schools, if teachers are changing schools, I, I, I'm kind of starting to really now think about investing more in the wider messaging rather than just in the individual messaging. Not that there's a lack of uh, benefit in individual messaging, um, but yeah, so I'm just thinking that, you know, you send kids out into their usual environment and I always wonder about the impact of that, the potential, you know, even if they are thinking, oh, I really, I really want to take this on for myself. I really want to take this into my heart and into my body. And yet my parents are telling me this, my teachers are teaching me that, how can I possibly shift my own, you know, it also puts the onus on the individual as well, which I think is really problematic. Yeah, especially when it's a child, right? right? Especially when it's a child, when they mm -hmm. may not have as many choices as an adult might have. Um, so I, I really think that is, that is where we can make the impact. I was just now reading a study that came out in the last week about the way um, parents talk to, to their children about weight and it really found like found that it's really influenced by the parents' internalized weight bias, right? So how they think about weight um, for themselves, and that really influences how, which makes sense. But um, what a, what an impact dietitians could make um, to really kind of 
explain some of these concepts to parents and, and teachers. Yeah. And it would trickle out, right? It would really trickle out. Yeah, I think so. I think that, you know, given how our educators are in a really influential position, that, yeah. you know, being able to help them do some unlearning. I mean, same as you and I and I have done in our lives. We've yes. had to do, I'm not sure how you feel. I feel like I'm constantly like, as I'm learning, I'm doing the same amount of unlearning. So yes. <laughs> equalizing <laughs> out, you know? Yes. And I, just like you said, I, I think back to some of my early um, teaching of younger children and I cringe, right? I, I, I cringe. I have really changed how I do things. Mm-hmm. Um, but that I also try to be compassionate with myself. That's how, that's how we all learn. Absolutely. So just to round off this section, what we're, what we're kind of offering up is that if uh, dietitians or health professionals are invited into maybe schools or sporting clubs, that one thing we might offer is a bit more of a, excuse me, a bit more of a package as opposed to just like a one-off, one-hour thing with the students or with the athletes so that it has a little bit more impact Yes. Um, yes. I think that'd be amazing. Yeah. Or if you had to speak to one group, like if there was if, in terms of funding and budgets, which are totally understandable, that we might provide a rationale for, for maybe why we would um, speak with parents or teachers or educators as opposed to, or coaches, as opposed to the, um, the children or teens themselves. Yeah, and I, I think the big, the biggest rationale when it's young children is that um, kids don't grocery shop and kids don't make food choices, and so it makes more sense to talk to the adults, you know. And so that's something very most people can go, oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, that of course. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and you and I know both know that ju- um, that sometimes things are done just because that's the way they've always been done and actually my experience has been that people are really reasonable and very receptive actually I have to do often very little convincing and that's not necessarily because of skillfulness it's just simply providing a clear and kind explanation for why your your kind of preference or why your recommendation I guess more more like it is to uh, roll out whether it is you know education for example um Mm. with a specific audience for a specific reason i have actually found people to be quite receptive they're like oh yeah just like you said it's like oh yeah of course didn't think about it like that yeah and and that's what we i feel like is the wonderful thing about this is that it's pretty logical right when Mm -hmm. you really stop and think about a lot of the messaging that we're giving or promoting it really makes sense and people can grasp it it's just that it's really different than what our culture is saying yeah that's exactly Um, right it's kind of a shift isn't it you know it's like yeah it's not even it's 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 kind of like a 180 it's turning everything on it on its head and as we said you know the unlearning and learning it's a real challenge right it really 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 is Mm, thank goodness I mean what I really appreciate about you and Catherine is that you your messaging and the way in which you've been able to support us as a profession has just has just been it has really demonstrated fantastic leadership you know your ability to be able to help us um put pieces of the puzzle together is actually really kind of just what we talked about and that is that oh yeah okay so you know it's it's providing a rationale for why we need to be you know shifting in this direction 
Well, good. And, and well, we've, we've loved it and we, and we are still working on our curriculum. So, you know, Yay. soon we're excited to have something very concrete that, um, dietitians can pull from it's really being made for the schools so teachers can pull from it but it'll be available for dietitians to use they can pull out different lessons um and so but we've really um enjoyed i've i've really enjoyed it learning more about childhood development um it's it's been a not anything i learned about in school at all um and so i've really really enjoyed enjoyed kind of pairing together childhood development with nutrition yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, no wonder Ellen Satter, for those who aren't aware, Ellen Satter is not just a dietitian, she's also a family therapist. And so her, um, you know, her skillfulness around dynamics is very unique. And it's what provides the kind of the Satter, you know, competency kind of models at, in such a strong foundation because she has that family therapy systems kind of framework that underpins the whole thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. So just to change gear a little, I understand that um, in more recent years, you've actually been undertaking um, some different kinds of work in somatics. Um, and this is something which I am very, very interested in, both as a yoga teacher and um, eating disorders specialist, dietitian. So um, tell us a little bit about what you've been, about what you've been kind of digging into. Neat. So I have been um, completing a training. It's called Embodied Recovery. It's with Paula Scataloni and Rachel Lewis Marlowe. They're two therapists here in North Carolina. And so several years ago, I did their level one training. And then I'm, been, I'm in the process of completing their level two training. But it incorporates um, both somatic experiencing and the concepts of um, um, sensory motor psych psychotherapy and it kind of brings it all together um, in a way to use, use it with people with eating disorders. And it's really changed the way I um, work with clients. It gives me a whole nother, I almost think I have like this whole other toolbox um, that I can help my clients with. Um, and I, it's funny because I get lots of questions of, well, you're a dietitian. How how in the world, um, why is this helpful? Why are you spending all this money on this training and all this time? Um, and, but they've really built me up and I really agree with them that, that because we're talking about food, you know, because food is the topic of conversation and that for so many of our clients with eating disorders, that is so activating. We need to understand what happens with the nervous system yes, um, and how we can help our clients, whether it's in session get back into their window of tolerance and I can talk about window of tolerance or what they might do to help them um, broaden their window of tolerance or get in their window of tolerance so they can eat or not use behaviors or, or different things. So it's really, um, it's, it's like I said, it's like a whole set of uh, new sets of tools that I have. Yeah, no, I love that. And I would love you to explain a little bit about, um, what somatics is and then the window of tolerance is it's such a fantastic tool very practical as well um, and and something that that I personally have found that people understand quite easily and quite quickly as and then we can build skillfulness around um, noticing where we are within our, our window of tolerance and and what it actually this the felt sense of how it feels when we're getting heading towards our edges and when we're um, 
when we're out, I guess, either whether that's elevated yeah. or, or on the on the downside. So uh, do you yeah. mind just kind of taking us back a little? Sure. Um, yeah. So um, let me think kind of the simplest way to talk about it. But a lot of this work is really, in, you know, we're, as dietitians, most of us are trained to to use more cognitive behavioral therapy. That's right, right? Yeah. To really work about people's thoughts. So, you know, doing psychoeducation around food or kind of myth busting or doing meal plans and all that is very important. So I really think about that. That's like our cognitions and that's so important. And, and then in more recent years, we've learned more about DBT, right? Di dialectical behavioral therapy. So we've kind of learned some um, skills that we can work with our clients on um, to help them with um, some of their um, eating disorder behaviors. But somatic informed nutrition therapy is really, instead of thinking, instead of top down processing, learning things with our brain and then incorporating it, it's bottom up. So really thinking about how we, how we can help our patients resource their body so that their nervous system is in a place where it can accept and digest food mm. so that we know if so many of our clients have experienced some kind of trauma and that our bodies can get stuck in that fight or flight or freeze mode. Mm -hmm. um, and for years we can be stuck in, in that mode from a, um, from a somatic or a, the way our nervous system is organized. And so then we need to use eating disorder behaviors to function um, in the world. And so um, if we can help our clients start to um, get out of that fight or flight or freeze mode, then they, they won't need their eating disorder behaviors as much and they're able to take in and digest food. So I hope yeah. I, it's such, honestly, I'm, even though I've done hours of this training, I'm still trying to incorporate it all in my brain. So I hope I'm making some sense. Yeah, no, I think, I think that was absolutely brilliant. And I think just, okay. a, just a loop back to one thing, and that is that to be really clear that tr trauma is not just as that that which is diagnosed in the DSM-5, which is the most recent iteration of the Diagnostic Standards Manual or our kind of psychiatric diagnoses book, I guess, <laughs> reference oh, book or yes. something you would say, um, because it's really limited to PTSD and complex trauma, both of which um, do um, or can intersect with an eating disorder experience, um, either alongside it or separate to. Um, so not both of those are important. Um, and there are lots of other ways that we're now starting to name trauma that is not in the DSM. So for example, um, you know, the body interprets chronic cycles of dieting as a form of neglect. And yes, that yes. can get really, uh, like we say, you know, kind of stuck in the body and can then um, perpetuate loops of behaviors and, and loops of nervous system reactivity, which then can, um, you know, uh, the, what we might see is kind of attachment or avoidance or, uh, you know, like you say, you know, behaviors. So not just kind of clinical eating disorder behaviors, but all kinds of different behaviors, which, um, which are not, I guess, congruent with a high quality of life. I guess if we were to be really, really vague, you know, Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it can be, um, it can be trauma that happens very, very early, you know, attachment with a caregiver it can be 
Um, you know, it doesn't have to be that big T trauma, like you're saying, that's diagnosed. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. So, um, so let's talk a little bit about the window of tolerance because I really, I really love this idea. So do you mind telling us a little bit about what your understanding is? And you did such an amazing job before about talking about somatic. So don't worry for a second if we're just like, okay. it's sort of like this and kind of like that. And <laughs> it's great. That's kind of where I am with things. Yeah, um, absolutely. And you can chime in you know, as, uh, as I'm working on it. But so I love explaining this to my clients. I, I'll draw it out on a piece of paper. And so we'll really talk about it. But we talk about that we, we function best when we're within our wisdom, our window of tolerance. So this is the place where um, somatically or our nervous system is set up that things, um, we're not in fight or flight, right? We're just, things are easy, we can um, be in relationship with other people. Our body feels safe. We, we can taste food. We can um, do what we need to do. If we get activated and we go too far above our window of tolerance, um, that is where we think of as fight or flight. If we think about it from a trauma perspective, um, some people might use the word feeling um, anxiety or anxious. So you're really kind of buzzing. Um, and a lot of our senses go offline like we might either we don't we don't um can't taste food as well or we might even have heightened we might really have heightened taste or heightened smell um and so we're really kind of above above your window of tolerance um and we oftentimes might use eating disorder behaviors to try to get in our window of tolerance when we're feeling like life is too much um using some of those behaviors might in some ways, quote, help us kind of be able to function in the world to get back into our window of tolerance or what Rachel and Paula say, kind of it makes you, it makes a faux window. It feels like things are to more tolerable. Mm, that's really interesting. Yeah. I haven't heard it described like that. That's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. And then if you go too low, that's more in that, of that freeze. If we're thinking about from a trauma perspective and then um, can't digest food, um, we, again, our senses might be offline. We can't be in relationship with others. People might think about that as a low mood or depressed. And, um, and again, we might use eating disorder behaviors to try to get us back into mm. our window of tolerance. Um, and so even in session, there might be things that we can do with our clients to help them regulate their nervous system so that they can even talk to us. Yes. Um, and so even from a very basic, you know, just in session, I feel like I have some things to do where I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have known what to do a few years ago. And I can give an example. That would be that great. I, I was just about to say, I, I apologize for interrupting. Um, I was about to say, could you give us an example? Because I think that you know, dietitians are all about giving us examples. Yes. So, so, you know, if, if someone is in a super anxious situation, they're having a lot of trouble talking about what's going on. I'm sure we all can kind of relate to this client. They can't look you in the eye. Um, as simple as, so I have a weighted lap pad in my office that I just, I ordered off of Amazon. And so I just might say, would you be open to putting this on your lap? So I don't need to say, you know, what's going on? calm down, you know, any of the, anything yeah, like that, or yeah, let's talk yep. about what, what's going on in your head. Let's talk about it. 
just that would, would you be open to putting, and I might even point at it, it might be, it's usually sitting beside them. Would you put this on your lap? You know, and then we can just, it's something to do. You know, we can take a few deep breaths and hopefully their nervous system can come down a little bit. Mm. Um, kind of the opposite of example of that is um, I've had a, you know, a client where, and I don't know if you've ever had a client in this situation where they're just in that day, they're absolutely curled up in a ball yeah. mm-hmm. and they're just in a really tough place and cannot talk. Yes. So they really, and you can look physically and see they're really more in that dorsal place, that place below their window of tolerance. So you don't want to put a lap pad on someone who's feeling that way. Like they they need to have a little bit more activation. Mm. And so I think in the past, honestly, with a client like that, after a little while, I don't think I knew what to do. You know, that at some point, if someone can't talk, that they're such in a a bad place, you know, we might have ended the session early. um, But um, something I've done is after this training is give them the other end of a, a yoga strap and just say, would you hold the other end of this? And, and they don't need to talk, but just if they'll pull on it, they can feel that I'm on the other end of it oh, I love so that. that we can start to kind of pull back and forth and that, that they can feel that someone's there with, with them without yeah. me saying anything. And literally you can see your client start to kind of come up, you know, come up a little bit and be able to sit up. Um, so that you can start, you know, even, even looking at someone in the eye can help you kind of regulate your nervous system and kind of help you get back back into your window of tolerance. Other things I've done is toss a ball back and forth if someone's in a place where they can do that. So those are just like little examples of kind of something you can do right there in session. Yeah, I, I really love those examples. And of course, you know, um, if you haven't done the training, then do the training first, right? Before kind oh, right. of yeah. doing, yeah. any, doing any of that stuff. Because we, <laughs> we love trying stuff, of course. We love experimenting yes. with different things. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's actually really interesting. And, and thank you so, so much for giving those examples. Now, um, uh, because this is a podcast, i.e. an audio, um, Anna and I are actually talking on video right now. And I want to share with you what Anna was actually doing while she was explaining the window of tolerance, because I think this is actually really important. And I, do, I know I do this as well. So for everybody listening, if you hold up both your hands, like palms down, and then pop one palm on top of the other, uh, about two or three inches apart or so. So this is a way that you can visually show um, your client or, or somebody who you're explaining this to what the window of tolerance is. Um, so I noticed that Anna, when she was explaining it to us, she was doing that with her hand. So one palm on top of each other in the air, you know, a couple of inches in front of your chest or so to just kind of explain that window of tolerance. And that's a, that's a neat way that you can visually um, explain that. So it, so, and I really love the way Anna also said, you know, you can draw it out as well. Um, and especially when we're, you know, we're, we're wanting to maybe offer some, some grounding techniques or strategies or skills that people can build to take home with them, that being able to take home a visual memory or something that they, or, or even something on a piece of paper is, um, is a really great way for people to um in moments that matter, as I, as I say, um, they can r- recall the time that you have spent with them before they fly right out of their window of tolerance. Because 
I think it's fair to say that when we're at the edges, like right at the outer edges, I should say, not even at the edges of our window of tolerance, our capacity is reduced significantly. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So I do, I do love being able to give clients something they can hold on to, right? Mm-hmm. And that they can take that piece of paper with them or take a list with them or, um, or, or it might even just be having that experience in the room with you that they might remember it from a somatic from inside their body way. They might remember what that felt like, um, which is something they can take with you. And that's what I love about this work is it really, instead of saying these are behaviors that we need to squash, it's, these are, these are your body's telling us something, telling us something really important. And um, I wonder what else, your body needs um, besides that. And ideally you're working with a therapist that is a somatically trained therapist and they're doing a lot of the heavy lifting. But, um, but I just love that reframe rather than this message of you're doing something wrong. You've got, you know, use your skills to eradicate these behaviors instead. Let's be curious about this, which really kind of fits into how non-diet dietitians approach their work, right? Let's be curious. Yeah, absolutely. And let's honor the wisdom of your body. Your body is, I love how you said that your body is telling us something important. I wonder what else, I wonder what else it has to say. And I wonder what it needs. What is it telling us that it needs at the moment? So rather than labeling it as, as bad or unwanted, um, you know, that it may not feel pleasant um, and, and alongside the unpleasantness, can we are we able to access some curiosity because a lot of our a lot of the greatest learning comes in in the um in the uncomfortable right even for us yes no absolutely when we feel when we feel called out on facebook or something it's like oh what you know it's (laughs) in this moment may i engage my curiosity (laughs) (laughs) absolutely hundred percent percent yes yes as I come up just, with, as I come up with a snarky reply exactly, exactly. But let me be curious about that a minute yeah. let me be curious about how I can be kind and snarky at the same time exactly. anyway oh my goodness oh. that is so so helpful Anna I, I just really appreciate you kind of really digging into that because I personally think this is probably where dietetics is heading at least that's where I'm I'm hoping because for us eating disorder dietitians the complexity of the individuals and groups who and communities that we work with um, like our work is not getting easier and also it's not as if we're coming up with these great breakthroughs about eating disorder prevention or early intervention or treatment like it's not like you know we have this amazing model of care that is that is so effective for a vast majority of people. The truth is that, you know, amongst eating disorder, at least I have found this amongst dietitians, there's this real communal sense of, you know what, we're muddling about in this together. None of us have all the answers. So how about we just not have all the answers together type thing? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And like I said, I just, I feel like this model honestly just fits in to the way I've been practicing, I didn't have the words, but I feel like a lot of the people that listen to your podcast are probably um, eating disorder dietitians or non-diet dietitians. And so it's not something that's, if does it feel like I'm having to unlearn, like we were talking about earlier. It's more like this really fits into that. You know, it re- like if we're just thinking about our fit, 
you know, you know, I get uncomfortable about some of the models of how people are treating our fit of, we just have to exposure, 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 exposure from this very eating disorder, um, Mm -hmm. treatment kind of mindset. And instead of thinking, I wonder what's going on somatically with this patient, you know, um, and let's figure that out rather than induce any more trauma around food. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. that's a whole nother podcast. We can come back to that another time. Now, I offered something really interesting in terms of, um, you know, who's been doing, which professions have been doing what. And it's really interesting. I find I am, I just need to say right up front, I am not particularly knowledgeable in Arford, um, but I have found conversations that I've had with occupational therapists to be so enlightening because they work a lot somatically and a lot with the senses. So it's, I don't know. And they've been doing this with lots of different kind of um, conditions and presentations for a long time. So it feels like this is the era of the occupational, finally the occupational therapists can be like, Hey, Hey guys, like we've been doing this for years. Hello. You know, but, um, yes. you know, probably alongside dietitians, occupational therapists are like, oh, you're this like fringe profession type thing. Because I'm like, occupational therapists rule. They're so important. And we love them. We should be learning from them. Totally agree with you. A hundred percent. I, you know, I have more occupational therapists on my caseload now than I ever have um, because of the work I'm doing. And um, I think you're right. They, we really, I hope that an eating disorder team is going to include an occupational therapist as a standard. I think it's really, really needed. Yeah. Um, They're so. incredible. They really are. It just, I mean, Amazing. I have a family member who's an, who's an OT and I've, I've gathered, yeah, lots of kind of um, colleagues and friends along the way who are OTs and just my, I'm constantly astounded um, and amazed. I really shouldn't be like, they're really amazing. They're such amazing people doing incredible work in the world. So if you're friends with an OT, take them out for dinner, just shout them a drink, <laughs> make them feel special. <laughs> agree. Agree. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we have Anna, so much to learn from them. Yes, we do. Yes, absolutely. In fact, probably our professions should get together a little bit more often. I think we've got a lot in common in lots of ways. I agree. agree. And maybe speeches, they can come to dinner as well. I like it. We <laughs> <laughs> have this little allied health team. We're not excluding psychologists and we're not excluding physio or physical therapists. No. They, they no. can come for dessert later. Let's just <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh, goodness. Um, Anna, it was so fantastic. I, I can't even tell you how grateful I am to have had this conversation. I feel like I've learned so much more about you than I knew already. And um, I'm so grateful for the the wisdom and experience that you've shared with Mm -hmm. us all here today and hope to really hear more about, you know, your curriculum and and the somatic and the sensory stuff moving forward. Um, So tell us where we can find you. Great. Well, thank you. It's really an honor and a treat to be able to talk to you. Um, So thank you so much for having me. Um, So you can find me at um, two places. You can find me at Sunny Side Up Nutrition. And so this is a um, simple cooking and nutrition blog that I write with my friend Elizabeth Davenport. And so on Instagram, that's at Sunny Side Up Nutritionist um, or in the same handle on Facebook. Um, and then I also have a private practice in Raleigh, North Carolina called Let's Alexander and Associates Nutrition Therapy. Um, and my Instagram is at Anna Lutz RD. 
Perfect. That is so great. Um, Anna, again, thank you so much for your generosity and your ongoing um, incredible contributions to our profession and to everybody who, who benefits as a result of that. Um, so thank you once again. Thank you so much. Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone.